Praise the Lord. This is Andrew Womack, and I would like to share some things from God's Word with you about Christians and politics, the involvement that the Lord would have a Christian to have in government, politics, and things like this. And this is not necessarily talking about a person who would participate like running for office and those kind of things, but um, how much effort should a Christian put in to reforming the government system that they live under through the political process? And this isn't going to be a complete answer, but there are some things from God's Word that I believe go contrary to the current thinking of most Christians. And let me just preface this by saying that uh, a lot of this, the reason I'm teaching on this is because uh, at the time I'm making this, this is March of 1993. And it follows the presidential election, of course, of 1992, where President Bush ran against Bill Clinton. And during this period of time, there was tremendous amount of political activity by Christians. And actually, from my perspective, it goes all the way back uh, to the moral majority back in the late 70s. And they mustered a lot of Christians together. And people like uh, Reagan and Bush, the first time Bush ran, they won by large margins. They were voted in basically because of their moral stand. And you had Christians coming out and very openly advocating the Republican Party because it stood for moral values. It had on it in its plank that it was um, against abortion. They were actually trying to get a constitutional amendment uh, prohibiting abortion. And they were for uh, certain family values. They were against homosexuals and many other things. And so anyway... The moral majority, Pat Robertson through the 700 Club, and of course there was many others, a multitude of talk show hosts, uh, pastors in churches, just a lot of Christians. Uh, there was a great influx of active Christians into the political process, and it had a real effect during the 70s, uh, or excuse me, during all of the 80s, and even up until 1992. And yet... Uh, it didn't accomplish as much as people wanted. Like, I remember one of the things that uh, was talked about a lot was that if we would elect these conservative presidents that had uh, moral values, then what would happen is they would appoint conservatives to the Supreme Court. As some of the Supreme Court justices retired, then these new justices would take their place, and eventually we would come up with a conservative Supreme Court that would overturn the rulings, of Roe versus Wade, it would overturn a lot of the rulings that are kind of anti-family, and it would really begin to make a moral impact. So that was one of the major things that was promoted. Now, even though there was good that came out of that, and I believe that there has been a lot of good happened during the eight years of Reagan and four years of Bush, it didn't accomplish what a lot of Christians were looking for it to. As a matter of fact, this so-called conservative Supreme Court now has actually refused to overturn Roe versus Wade. They didn't officially uphold it, but they have skirted the issue. They haven't faced it. And it doesn't look like that it's going to be done through the Supreme Court. There are disappointments. And so a lot of Christians who got involved in this political process and were really hinging a lot of their hopes on it have been discouraged. And then during the 1992 campaign, uh, when President Bush ran against uh, Governor Bill Clinton, a lot of Christians got involved, and I heard things like that if Clinton was elected, it was going to be just like Armageddon. 
that the United States was doomed, that God's liable to bring judgment on us uh, in the next 24 hours. And the reason for that is because Bill Clinton advocates such things as abortion, and he's even gone to the point that he's lifted the bans on uh, Planned Parenthood so that they now counsel the people that come in and offer abortion as a form of birth control. They put it into that category. So he's promoting uh, abortion as a form of birth control. Not only is he not going to overturn it, he's encouraging it, the uh, use of it according to what you can see in the natural. It would even spread and become more of a, of a tragedy in this nation. He's advocating homosexuals into the military. He's against much of the family things, just nearly anything that stands for Christian values. He's opposed it. And because of that, there were dire predictions. And the scripture does say in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 23, it says, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people or any nation. And so I do believe that when a nation is operating under godly principles, when we are using moral standards that God dictated, that there is a supernatural blessing from God that goes along with it. And our nation, the United States, has definitely experience that. I know that there's people in the UK that'll be getting this tape, Canada, Australia, other places, and many of these so-called Christian nations have a tremendous blessing upon them, and it's evident. If you travel to these other nations, like uh, just recently, Albania was the very first communist uh, state to declare themselves an atheistic state, and they tried to obliterate all mention of God from their society. They took it off of the tombstones. They took crosses off of tombstones. They obliterated the name of God from textbooks off of any documents. It was against the law to mention God, to claim to be a Christian. It was punishable, some cases, by death. And uh, they tried to be atheistic. Of course, it didn't work. The communist system fell. And now Albania is crying out for Christianity. And they're having Christians come into their school systems. And, I mean, there's a revival going on. But if you go to countries like that who have been living under that type of oppression, you can see that there is poverty, there's despair, there's hopelessness, there's bitterness. I mean, when a person or a country operates under godly principles, there is blessings that follow. And when they operate in, in anti-godly principles, then the curse comes upon it. And many people are fearing the worst now that uh, Bill Clinton's got in, and, and I am not here to make a political statement whether I'm for or against him, I definitely am against his morals. Now, that you know that's not saying that I'm against him as a person. He is the President of the United States. I'm not criticizing him. I'm submitted to that. But uh, I don't like the moral stand. Many Christians don't. I know that right after the election, I called one woman, and she had been crying for over 24 hours. She said she just couldn't stop. She thought that America was doomed, that Armageddon was upon us. I talked to another person that had been so depressed that, I mean, they were just ready to give up, like there's no hope now. I talked to one couple, and they were not going to have any more children because they were just, they said, you can't bring children into a world like this. And so I understand the thinking behind this. But there is a big difference between these attitudes 
and what is espoused in the Word of God. And you've got to remember that Paul and Peter and Jesus were living under the most corrupt, or certainly one of the most corrupt governmental systems that has ever existed on the face of the earth. And yet you didn't find despair. You didn't find hopelessness. You didn't find impending doom. They didn't preach that. You didn't find a lot of the things that are so prevalent today. I think that part of the hopelessness has come because Christians have actually put more faith into politics and into government changing the nation than they have into the gospel. Now, I am not against Christians participating in politics, and we're going to be getting into some scriptures and sharing some more things on this, but I'm just trying to state this principle up front, and then we'll go verify it. But I'm not against Christians being in politics. I think that a Christian that doesn't take their God-given right here in the United States or in some of these other countries that allows you to vote, if uh, you don't use that, I do believe that that's wrong. But it's not necessarily wrong as a Christian. You can't find a scripture that dictates those kind of things. That's just your responsibility as a citizen of that country. If that country has uh, established themselves so that they depend upon the population to cast their vote and to participate in the process, then I think as a citizen, as an individual, as a human being, you have a responsibility to operate in that direction. I certainly think that it would be okay for Christians to advocate that you take your God-given privilege in these democracies and cast your vote and participate in the process. There's certainly nothing wrong with that. But what I do believe is wrong and has done a lot of damage to people and has caused this hopelessness and despair in many people is because they have actually looked to government to do what the gospel was meant to do. A lot of Christians have actually put more effort, more they've hinged their hopes upon government changing this nation and bringing us back to morality. Now, in a nutshell, this is basically what it boils down to. And I think that this is where the error was made, that Christians got so excited about the fact that, man, if we could bind together, if we could pool our resources, we can get in, we can change the Supreme Court, we can change the presidency, we can get in and elect officials who will do the right thing. And Christians really expected revival, in a sense, to come through politics. Now, I don't think that they would have used that terminology because that was too obvious. But in practice, that's actually what was happening. Many Christians were looking for government to change our society, to bring this country back to its moral foundations. And that is not what government was ever intended to do. Let me just quote, first of all, before we get right into the scriptures, let me quote some people uh, who are famous in American politics. Some of these date all the way back to the founding of our nation. John Adams, who was the second president of the United States, he once wrote, Our Constitution was designed only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. Free government rests upon public and private morality. What he's saying here is that government doesn't produce morality. All government can do is is enforce morality. There's always going to be a segment that will not go along. There's always going to be some people who reject the things of God. And so all you can do with government is enforce the majority rule and keep these people who don't abide by, say, standards of, um, you know, they want to go out and murder people. They want to rob and plunder instead of earn their living. As long as those people are in the minority, well, then you can enforce force it with government, but it says that the the Constitution wasn't designed to produce morality, but rather it was designed only for a moral and religious people. That moral and religious nature of the nation 
isn't produced by the government, but it's safeguarded by the government. Also, here's what Dr. Jedediah Morse said in 1799. It says, In proportion as the genuine effects of Christianity are diminished in any nation, either through unbelief or the corruption of its doctrines, or the neglect of its institutions, in the same proportion will the people of that nation recede from the blessings of genuine freedom. Whenever the pillars of Christianity shall be overthrown, our present republican forms of government and all the blessings which flow from them must fall with them. What he's saying basically is, see, again, government doesn't produce Christianity, but Christianity produces these freedoms that we have come to expect through the democracies. In a sense, see, he's saying that government cannot give our society what Christianity has failed to give it. Some other quotes on this. I can open my page. It says, uh, Calvin Coolidge said this when he was inaugurated. He was the 30th president of the United States. He was inaugurated in 1923. He says, The foundations of our society and our government rest so much on the teachings of the Bible that it would be difficult to support them, speaking of the foundations of society, if faith in these teachings would cease to be practically universal in our country. Again, see, here's another leader, a president, 30th president of the United States, saying that government only enforces the morals that are already nearly universal in our society. If the, if the morality of our society ever begins to decline, then as uh, this other quote that we read by Jedediah Morse, then the genuine effects of that form of government and all the blessings which flow from must fall along with the morality. Here's another statement by William Penn. He was the founder of Pennsylvania, and he wrote this in the early 1700s. He says, Government seems to me to be a part of religion itself. Let man be good, and the government cannot be bad. Or you could turn it around this way and say, Let man be bad, and the government cannot be good. That's an awesome statement. Here's another quote on the same thing. This is a man named Elias Benoit. I think is the way you pronounce his name. He was a president of the Continental Congress in 1783. He later became a congressman from New Jersey, and he also served as the president of the American Bible Society. And he said this, If the moral character of a people once degenerate, their political character must soon follow. Now, the reason I'm quoting all of this is to say that from the very founding of this nation, on through uh, Calvin Coolidge, he was back in the 1920s, and still today I'm saying these things, okay, if nobody else is, that government is not intended to give our society morality. Government is not ordained to change our society and bring them back to God. This is what the gospel is meant to do. And I really believe that one of the things that has happened in our country is that because we do have a democracy and because that democracy at one time established morality and uh, because it was so prevalent, it was kind of like the church didn't really have to do its job. We had a society that uh, the government enforced those morals. It was reflected in everything that was done. Our public schools were ordered with prayer. Actual, actually, public schools were started by, by churches, and eventually the government took them over. But uh, they were founded with prayer in the schools and the Ten Commandments on the walls and things like this. And Christians today see that we're moving away from that. And so what they want to do is go back to government and have government reinstate all of these things. 
when I say I'm definitely not against prayer in schools and I'm not against the Ten Commandments being there and pictures of Jesus hung in the hall and things like that. I'm all for it. But what I'm saying is I think that we're choosing the wrong avenue. We are putting tremendous amount of effort into changing these things through politics and legal action. And don't misunderstand. Yes, we need to be involved in politics as citizens. We need to start voting morality instead of voting for somebody who promises to put money in our pocketbooks. Uh, we need to start voting our conscience and acting as, as Christians and as individuals we need to do that. I think that if a person is wrong, that there's certainly nothing wrong with going to the to uh, law and pleading and using some of these Christian uh, legal systems now that are there to defend people so that the ACLU will not just be able to force immorality on people. As individuals, I think we ought to do that. But I'm saying that that should not be our thrust. It isn't our best weapon. The strongest weapon that the church has against the immorality in, in government is the preaching of the gospel. If we would change the hearts of men then those men would change their society. Some of them would just be public pressure. The vote would now go, and they would start electing people that represented it. Some of it, it would be that maybe some of these politicians would get born again in office, and they would begin to start reflecting the change that's in their life. But the way that we change the world is through the preaching of the gospel. And I really feel that the church has um, put all of their efforts, kind of all of their eggs in one basket. There has been so much effort put into politics that now uh, that the politics seem to be going against the church and that there are some setbacks, many Christians are just hopeless. I've actually had one Christian say, man, what can we do? All we can do now is pray, implying that there was something better that you could have done before, that prayer wasn't a real weapon. No, see, that is misplaced. I guarantee you prayer is more powerful than all the political things that could be done. You know, if um, I heard this statement that Billy Graham back in the 1950s was asked to run for president, and he declined and told them that he wouldn't lower himself to take that position. Now, that's not him trying to put down the presidency of the United States, but what he's doing is exalting the office of a minister. A minister actually has more power to change people through the preaching of the gospel than you would ever have through a political office. Now, that's an awesome statement, but I really believe that. You know, it was Mary Queen of Scots that said, or I think it was her, it was certainly during that time, I was just over in Edinburgh and, and saw all of these things, and I, I think I'm quoting all of this right, but she said that she feared the prayers of John Knox more than all of the military might that she had ever come against. And it was because John Knox, he wasn't political in the sense that he was advocating this and that and some of these things, but he was standing for morality and preaching the gospel, and he was approaching it from the gospel standpoint, and it literally made Mary, the Queen of Scotland, cringe every time she came around him. I guarantee you, a person that was operating in the gospel actually has more power to change things than if we were to form a physical revolt. Now, if you go all the way back to the Bible... And look at what the Bible has to say. There's some interesting things, I believe, that will verify this. For instance, Paul, uh, he wrote some things about Christians and their involvement in government. And you've got to remember that at the time he was writing this, he was living under the Roman government uh, rule. 
And the Roman government, you know, all of us have seen shows on this, and although I'm sure that some of it's been embellished, there certainly was tremendous amount of corruption. Caesar proclaimed himself as being God. He had people worship him as a deity. There was multi-theistic worship everywhere throughout the empire, and and, uh, sin, immorality was rampant. Paul ministered in Corinth, and in Corinth there was a temple there where they had over a thousand priestess uh, that would perform sex with the people that came to the temple of Aphrodite, and that was part of their worship. And Paul ministered in Corinth a long period of time, and yet he never wrote one thing telling the Corinthians to go out and to stop that practice, to take back their city, to do these kind of things. That's not the attitude that Paul gave at all. Here's the instructions that Paul gave. Romans chapter 13, he says, "...let every soul be subject unto the higher powers." For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. Now, he's talking about government system here, civil government. And he says that they are in a terror to, to good people. He says if you are resisting them, you're resisting the ordinance of God. And now he calls them a minister of God to us for good. But if you do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore... Ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon the very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And on and on he goes. Now these instructions, you've got to remember that in his day and time, there was no government system that was a democracy as such, set up to ensure the liberties and the freedom of the people living under it. They were all dictatorships. They were all oppressive. There was nothing in the world at that time that any person listening to Paul's instructions could have said, well, this is only applied to these few uh, government systems that are established on Christian principles. There was no such thing. There wasn't a government on the face of the earth that was established on godly principles. There may have been some that were less ungodly than others, but none of them were quote-unquote godly governments. And so Paul is talking in, in the context of the people he was writing to. He's talking about governments that today people would feel 100% justified at rebelling at them, at fighting against them. Many people would be preaching uh, rebellion and feel justified, and yet that's not the advice that Paul gave. Paul didn't uh, advocate that at all. In Titus chapter 3, he told Titus, he says, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers to obey magistrates. Again, this is a strong statement because many of these magistrates were ungodly magistrates. Now, I've got another teaching on this. I've got some teaching that I went through the book of Romans on this and and uh, uh, teaching on submission, I go into, there's different kinds of submission. There's submission, husband and wife. There's a submission in the church. And then there's a civil submission. So I've got this in more detail. I haven't got time to go into all of this. But Paul is not saying that you ever obey ungodly commands. Like, for instance, in this nation, if there was ever a law that you had to abort your child, 
Well, I don't believe I would obey that. I wouldn't let my wife obey that. We'd resist it the same way that Moses' mother resisted the command of Pharaoh way back in the Bible, and God blessed her and honored her. You do not obey any ungodly command. If if they came, I would not follow any ungodly command. But you don't form a rebellion or a revolt over it. There's a difference between obedience and submission. You can submit to a government that is ungodly, and yet you act nothing but totally godly. You do not have to obey ungodly commands. And Peter gave an example of this in front of the uh, scribes and the Pharisees. He says, you judge yourself who we should obey, God or you. So he very clearly did not obey their commands about quitting preaching the gospel, and yet he turned around in 1 Peter chapter 2, and he says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. Boy, those are strong statements under, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and yet it would look like he disobeyed that. He didn't do it himself. But see, the key here is he said, Submit yourselves. He didn't obey their ordinance when it went against God, but he did submit. The word submit, it's an attitude. And if a person is commanding you not to preach the gospel, as in the case of Peter, he didn't do what they said because he would have had to have disobeyed God. But when they were displeased with him and they beat him, instead of him railing back on them, instead of him being angry and bitter and rebellious in his heart, he left there, the Bible says, rejoicing that he was counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of the Lord. So instead of complaining, he went and the believers gathered together in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts and they actually began to intercede for their leaders. And they began to pray that God would touch their hearts and change their lives. So see, that was submission. It wasn't obedience, but it was submission. And again, that other teaching that I've got would go into much, much more detail. I haven't got time to do that. But I'm just saying here that here these men were under government systems that would make ours look like it's just wonderful in comparison. Sometimes we listen to the news media. We talk so much about the negative things that we forget that with all of the problems in the United States and maybe the U.K., Canada, some of these other nations, that these still are some of the greatest places on the face of the earth. There's never been nations in the history of the world that enjoyed the freedoms and the liberties that we've got. I mean, with all of our problems, we're still better off. We're living under a system that's better than 99% of all of the people that have ever lived on the face of the earth. And we sometimes forget that. We get to looking at all the negatives and become so negative about it that it just produces discouragement, despair in our lives. But we've got to remember that they, Paul and Peter, were living under government systems that were much worse. And instead of this despair and instead of all of this oppression, they were telling people, man, you just rejoice. You submit to them. Go along with these things. Pray for them. Paul told them over in 1 Timothy chapter 3, says, pray for all of those. Or this is chapter 2. First of all, prayer, supplications, intercession, and giving of thanks should be made for all men everywhere, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may live a quiet and peaceable life in all honesty and godliness and sincerity. And so Paul there said, pray for these government leaders. Don't pray against them. He never railed on any of these people. When he was brought before Festus and Felix, he showed respect for those people's office, even though that they were just totally corrupt. There was terrible things going on. This is a different attitude than what most people have today. And I believe that the reason for it is, is because people have actually put their faith in government 
to produce what God called the church to do. God called the church to change men's hearts. And you change nations, not through politics. And please don't misunderstand me. You can have an influence on nation through politics. You put an ungodly man in office, and I guarantee you he can do a lot of damage. You put a godly man in office, and he can do a lot of good, but he can't totally change the nation. It's bigger than that. You cannot do it. You cannot affect all of the change that needs to be made through politics. But I tell you what you can do. You can preach the gospel. You can begin to start reaching men one heart at a time. And if a nation ever experiences revival, I can guarantee you that it is just a matter of time, and it's going to be a very short time until that nation reflects that revival in its politics. Because Not because the church all of a sudden flexes its muscle and goes in and demands this, but government is responsive to the people that it rules over. Now, some governments are more responsive than others. But even in totalitarian governments, we've seen the fall of the USSR, the Soviet Union. And that basically was overthrown by people. Now, there was some people that, in key positions that kind of started it. Gorbachev, I believe, was used. He started some reforms. He didn't want it to go as far as it did. He was a moderate instead of uh, Yeltsin. Yeltsin was much more... Um, aggressive than what Gorbachev was. But nonetheless, God used Gorbachev to kind of open up a little crack in the door. And then some things began running. But you know what actually turned the tide? It was when the people of Moscow and all of these, St. Petersburg and these other places, they poured out into the streets and the people just began to do things in mass. And ultimately, government is responsive to people. Now, some of these dictatorships, they flex their military might and stuff, but I guarantee you if if there is enough disrest, um, unrest among the people, it's going to eventually topple those governments. That's just the way it is. Now, it may take longer in some instances. There may be greater sacrifices in some instances, but ultimately governments do reflect uh, the people, and we've seen that. We've seen classic examples of this. You know, I read an article about how the Berlin Wall came down. I was over in East Berlin. I went right through Checkpoint Charlie just a matter of months before the Berlin Wall was torn down. And those men were standing there with their machine guns, and it was intimidating. And there wasn't a person in Berlin that I'm aware of. Nobody had an had a uh, any idea that the Berlin Wall was going to come down. I mean, it looked like it would be there forever. And yet I read an article about how all of this happened, and the leader of East Germany was under pressure from the public to allow people to go across into West Berlin to visit relatives, to do some shopping, do things like this. There was public pressure. And because of this, they were throwing around a number of different options. They were throwing around just letting very few people through, maybe opening it up for one weekend and letting people through, maybe possibly just opening the gates and letting the people go and see what would happen. And uh, this article that I read said that they had thrown around at least four or five different plans, limited ways of allowing people to go. Why? Because there was public pressure, because the East German government was failing and there was so much hardship that it was there was going to be a rebellion. Something was going to happen. They felt pressure from the people to do something. And so anyway, they were throwing around all of these different plans, and finally uh, the leader just in desperation says, all right, let them go. 
Well, he didn't specify which plan. He was just talking about let a few people go, this select group, go visit their relatives if they had meant certain qualifications. But by the command, got all the way down to the people at the Berlin Wall, they took it that just opened up the wall, just opened up these checkpoints and let them go. And when they did that, man, the people started streaming in mass. And, of course, the leader of East Berlin, when he found this out, he wanted to stop it. But what was he going to do? Was he going to put military uh, might in place and stop hundreds of thousands of people? It would have been a massacre. And, boy, what would have happened to him then? And so he was kind of in a situation where he had to just let it go. And before you know it, they started tearing the wall down. And this article that I read was saying that it was never intended. It was a mistake. It was a miscommunication. They did it because they were under pressure of the people. And once the people started streaming out, they couldn't stop it. And I mean that that was a major, major occurrence that caused the communist countries kind of to just fall like dominoes as a result. And again, it all happened because of public pressure. And, of course, somebody could argue that that was suppressed for nearly 70 years under communism. And I agree, it took a long time. There was a lot of hardship. But I'm saying, ultimately, the people did, they are the ones that actually uh, overcame the system. Now, there was other factors, economic things. There was a multitude of things. But the point that I'm making is that no one person can totally dominate anything. They can come close. Maybe Hitler came close, but... You can do more to change governments with the gospel. If you would preach the gospel, if if revival broke out, people's lives begin to start being changed, then I promise you that those people would eventually change the governments. That's the way that this nation, the United States, was founded. There was a revival. People were experiencing religious freedom. They came to the United States. At that time, it was the colonies to establish religious freedom. I've read some of the... Uh, covenants that they made, some of the compacts that were made when they came over here, and it was specifically for the purpose of pursuing their religious freedom, seeking the Lord with their whole heart. There was a revival among the people, and what sprung out of it? Probably one of the greatest democracies, probably the greatest democracy in the history of the world. I mean, some great things have happened because it had this Christian foundation. But because the government was in agreement, there, was not very, there wasn't a very strong line between government and the, the uh, religious foundations of the nation. It wasn't very clear. And before very long, I think that what happened was that the church kind of got fat and happy. We were living in a situation that in every way reflected the morals that we wanted. It was like we won. The church kind of went to sleep and ceased to really preach the gospel and pursue the hearts of men the way that they should. And for a period of time, it wasn't real obvious because the government was still established on the same principles. But then you begin to start seeing the government begin to change. And what happened when Christians saw it? Instead of going back to preaching the gospel and getting back to converting the hearts of men and changing society one heart at a time, the Christians began to start putting their efforts into politics to regain all of these freedoms and liberties and, and moral standards that we were losing in our government. And I agree that I think it's bad that these moral standards have changed. But what's our real... Uh, Power. What's our real base of operation that we have to change this government? It's not to get back into politics. Again, we do that as individuals, but the real thrust of it is to get back to preaching the gospel. If we would put as much effort 
into reaching men and changing the hearts of men as people have put into organizing political things and putting out campaigns and signing all of these things, which, again, I sign just about every petition on every moral issue that comes along. I'm not saying that we choose one or the other, but I'm saying that our focus needs to be on preaching the gospel. If every Christian, this is 1993, if every Christian, born-again Christian, there's approximately 34% of the American population claims to be born-again Christian. And if every born-again Christian in the United States was to just lead one other person to the Lord during the next four years, you know, that's... That's a sorry statistic. Every Christian ought to be leading one other person to the Lord at least once every year or once every month. But if you take a very conservative approach, and if every born-again Christian led one other person to the Lord, then by the next election, we would have, instead of 34%, we'd have 68% of the United States born-again Christians. And I guarantee you, God would lead those people. They would vote their heart. They would vote under the direction of the Lord, and you would again begin to start seeing some things happen in the nation that would reflect godly morals. That is something that, that is the greatest weapon that we have. There is no way that you could get Christians together, organize them into some kind of political force that could have near that much impact. Now, again, am I saying that we ought to choose between the two? No, I'm saying Christians can unite. Christians can sign petitions. I think that Christians ought to call their senators and governors, and they ought to make their um, their feelings known. We ought to do all of those things. But I'm saying that the effort ought to be put into the preaching of the gospel. That's the real power that God gave us. And I really believe that God established things in such a way that instead of him coming and the thrust of the Lord's ministry through people or through Jesus when he was here on the earth was not social reform. The thrust of it was to change the hearts of man. The 17th chapter of the book of Luke, somebody asked Jesus, says, when is the kingdom of heaven coming? And he says, the kingdom of heaven isn't going to come with outward observation. They aren't going to say, lo, here it is or there it is. But he says, the kingdom of heaven is within you. God's kingdom is in the hearts of man. When Jesus was standing before before Pilate, he said, If my kingdom were of this earth, then would my servants fight. But my kingdom is from above. And therefore, there wasn't any need to take physical measures. It was a spiritual kingdom established in the hearts of man. And you know, the wisdom of God in doing this is just tremendous. Now, someday he's going to come establish a physical kingdom. But what he's going to do is it's going to be during the millennium, and it's going to be when he shuts Satan up and locks him in the pit for a thousand years. And he's going to literally remove the oppositions, what it amounts to. No government here on this earth is really going to be capable of ruling totally corrupt man. You go back to that quote that we were reading about let man be good and government cannot be bad. You can turn that around and say let man be bad and no government can be good. Even Jesus is going to remove the element, take Satan and the beast and throw them into the pit and bound them for a thousand years. That's the reason that his rule here on this earth is going to work. And it's not going to be a democracy. It's going to be a theocracy. It's going to be where God rules and reigns, absolute dictator. And he's going to remove everything that offends out of the kingdom. Well, see, you can't really do that. Outside of God. I mean, as long as the devil is not bound, as long as he's still roaming the earth, and as long as Satan is still loose, you are going to have elements in society that are not godly. And there is no government that is going to be perfect 
in a situation like that. And again, Jesus is going to remove that type of corruption. It's like having a cancer in your body. There's no way that your body can be whole as long as you've got cancer spread throughout every cell. Maybe it's not, you know, dominant. You've got more healthy cells and you've got cancer cells. But if you've got cancer throughout your whole body, it's the whole thing's sick. And that's the way that it is. There is corruption in this world today, and you aren't going to have a perfect government, and you aren't going to have any government that is going to be able to produce righteousness in a society. That comes from the gospel. And this is where the focus and the thrust needs to be. And I believe that that's the reason God established the kingdom in the hearts of men, because, see, it can't be touched. Boy, this is one of the things I've learned traveling through around the world, especially in the Eastern Bloc countries, the ones that have now experienced the fall of communism. I was over in Poland and East Germany before the Berlin Wall came down. And even in those situations, and then I was in Austria and Hungary and Romania after the Berlin Wall came down. And I saw people that lived under oppression, lived under poverty, lived under terrible oppression. And and things happened that I could spend hours telling you some of the stories that some of these people told me. But I'm sure that many of you have experienced this. You've read or heard something about it. It was terrible situations. And those people under those situations prospered. I've met some Christians, especially this one couple I'm thinking of in Romania, that experienced the joy of the Lord. I mean, they just were overwhelmed with the presence of God. When you walked in, you could tell that these people loved God. They were tremendous people, and they told us terrible stories about what had happened, and yet they had prospered through it all. They had the joy of the Lord. They had been given the option of leaving Romania before the Berlin Wall came down. They could have escaped. They could have got out there. They were persecuted. Terrible things happened, and yet they didn't want to leave because they were content under a situation that many people in the West just can't even relate to, we'd think, how could any person be happy under that? Because they were living under the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were living in the joy and the peace of the Lord, and they experienced more victory in Christ than most people that I know in the Western countries that had so-called freedoms and democracy. I can show you people in prison that have experienced more joy and peace, and they are experiencing more of what life is all about than the people who are walking around free on the outside because they've been converted and have found their life in Christ. See, the wisdom of God in establishing a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom, it's tremendous because it doesn't matter who's elected president. It doesn't matter if some com- uh, if some army comes across and conquers your country. You may suffer some physical adversity. There may be some things that go wrong, but they can't touch the peace that's on the inside of you. God's kingdom is established in man's heart, and it's ensured to anyone who calls out to the Lord. It doesn't matter if you're in jail. It doesn't matter if you're in Albania. It doesn't matter if you're under communist rule. If you're living under uh, any type of oppression, regardless of where you are, you are free in the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, that's awesome. Now, government, if it can reproduce that, if it can reflect it even to a degree, well, then that's just an added blessing. I certainly wouldn't advocate going into any form of bondage. I appreciate the freedoms that I've got, but I can tell you this, that regardless regardless of what society I lived in, I could prosper through the Lord Jesus, and I've seen people who have done it. And I believe that that's the attitude that a Christian ought to have. We ought to pray for our government, like it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We ought to believe that God is doing good things in those nations and that God is changing it so that we can live a quiet and peaceable life, like it says. 
Those are things that we ought to pray for. But if we don't see it going our way, does that mean that we push the panic button? Does that mean that we are upset? No, because our kingdom really isn't this physical world. And we're gonna, our job is to reach people with the gospel. I tell you, if Christians would get back to the Great Commission doing what God said, we would be a lot happier. Our emotions wouldn't go up and down with the elections. Our hope wouldn't fluctuate. And praise God, we'd make a greater impact on the world through that than what we've been doing. So we've already established that Paul and Peter both didn't really advocate rebellion or criticism of the government. Rather, they just said, pray for them, and their efforts were put into the preaching of the gospel. Let me give you another example on this, and this is something that just amazes me. I've been studying this some, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and this is also repeated over in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter was saying that, but here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this is the apostle Paul speaking, and um, he said this in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 21 says, are you called being a servant? And this is talking about a slave. He's talking about slavery. Are you called being a servant? Care not for it. And if you look this up and study it out, what he's saying is just basically saying, don't let that bother you. Don't worry about it. Boy, that's some statement. That doesn't go over very well with a lot of people today because, boy, slavery now is not popular. At one time in Paul's day, slavery was uh, prevalent. There was a lot of people uh, who were slaves in Onesimus who uh, Paul wrote the letter of Philemon about in the Bible. It was written to Philemon about his slave, Onesimus, who had run away, and he found Paul in Rome, and Paul ministered to him, and he got born again and was now really seeking God. And what did Paul tell Onesimus to do? Well, you would think that, man, the gospel, we ought to preach that people are free, and I mean, we should have told Onesimus that, man, he's free, he's away, don't worry about it. But you know what Paul did? Paul wrote a letter back to Philemon. Philemon was a believer, Philemon had a church that met in his house. Paul was a friend of his. And Paul sent a letter back to Philemon and sent Onesimus back. Onesimus is the one that delivered the letter, told Onesimus to enter back into slavery under Philemon. And he did not tell Philemon to get rid of Onesimus and to free him. Now, some people today would think, man, that's terrible. And I don't believe that that was God's best. I do not believe that slavery is God's will. And we could spend a lot of time talking about that, but he made Adam to be a ruler over this earth. I don't think he ever made man to be ruled over and owned like a possession. And we could spend a lot of time on the scriptures, but I don't think many people would argue over that. So I don't think it was God's will, but in a situation like that where Paul had the power to influence people and cause them to change in their social actions, he didn't do it. Now that's amazing. Now, he may not have been able to change the entire system. Some people could argue, well, what was his point? What would have been the purpose? You know, he was in a situation where they didn't have a democracy. They didn't have access to the same legal things as what we've got, so they just had to roll with the punches. Well, that may have been true as a whole, but in this situation, in the book of Philemon, Philemon was a believer, and he was submitted to Paul. Apparently, Paul's the one that led him to the Lord, and so was Onesimus, the slave. He could have intervened in that situation, and he could have commanded them something, and probably Philemon would have gone along with it. And yet, that was not the approach that he took at all. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21, he says, Are you called being a servant? Care not for it. Don't worry about it. But if you may be made free, use it rather. In other words, if you can be set free, take advantage of it. He's not saying that you have to remain a slave. He's not advocating slavery. He's not telling people that slavery is good. That's not what he's saying. But he says, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. And here's his reasoning, verse 22. For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, 
is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. His reason for taking this position is because he says it's really not that important. Now, see, that does not set well with people today. A lot of people say, what do you mean it is an important man? And they start telling you the terrible things that have happened through slavery and all of this. I agree that it is very important when you look at it from the human perspective. When you look at it from, you know, only considering the things in the natural, then I admit that, boy, there are some terrible, terrible things happen through slavery. I do not believe that's God's will. If you have a chance to do something about it, I think it would be right for you to change it. But see, when you look at things from God's perspective, when you look at it that like this life is just like a snap of the fingers in the light of all eternity... When you look at the tremendous treasure that we've received in Christ, if people were really walking in the revelation that Paul had, if they were walking in New Testament Christianity and experiencing what salvation is really all about, I mean being in the presence of the Lord, you know what had happened? They would find so much comfort, so much peace, so much identity in who they are in Christ that it just doesn't really matter so much about your physical circumstances. And that's exactly the point, see, that I was making with this couple I was talking about in Romania. They were beat. Their daughter was beat. The woman was fired from her job. They were interrogated constantly. They had their electricity cut off one winter, and they had over an inch of ice on their ceiling, on their walls, on their floor all winter long. They nearly froze to death. Their diet, their normal diet. Now, when we came over, they gave us lunch meats and salami and things like that. But, you know, they had to save for nearly a month to get that. Their normal diet, the thing that they eat nearly every day, is bread with pig lard spread on it, and they grill it or fry it. And that's what they eat twice a day. And as a result, lots of people over there die. I mean, people could look at that and say, that's terrible, man, we got to do something about it. But they just had so much joy and peace that even when they were offered freedom from Romania back before the Ceausescu regime, regime fell, when they were offered freedom, they didn't need it. It's not that they had to turn it down and force their flesh to come under. They didn't desire it because they had so much liberty and peace and freedom in the Lord that they didn't care. See, you can find your identity in the Lord. And some people, that's so foreign to them that they just can't relate to it. They think, brother, that's wrong. But that's exactly what Paul's saying. Are you a servant? Don't worry about it. Don't care about it. Why? Because if you are in the Lord and you're a slave, well, then you're the Lord's freeman. Likewise, if you're free, then you're really Christ's servant. See, this whole concept that a lot of people have about freedom and about, man, nobody can tell me what to do. That whole attitude is not a godly attitude. Paul said that he was a bond slave to the Lord. And many places in Scripture advocate us being, I mean, a servant to the Lord. So this whole attitude of nobody tells me what to do, that thing will hinder you in your relationship with God. There is no such thing as that. Even in a democracy, you have restraints on it. And that's one reason that our society is so messed up is because people have perverted it and they preach individual rights at the expense of society. They're going to let individuals have the right to go ahead and live an immoral lifestyle even though it's spreading disease throughout the entire society and has a potential of wiping out large segments of the population. Man, your rights end at the end of your nose. You don't have the right to influence society like that to do things. So anyway, see, Paul, instead of preaching against slavery, which I believe God was against, and I believe Paul was against. I don't believe he favored it. He certainly didn't have any slaves. But instead of doing all of these social reforms, what they did was preach 
the gospel. Instead of railing against the Roman government, what they did was preach the gospel in the face of opposition. When they were thrown in jail, they just kept preaching the gospel and got the jailer born again. Man, regardless of what happened, when they were put on a ship and they were uh, guarded by soldiers and headed to Rome, he just kept preaching the gospel and saw the centurion born again and the people on the ship. And everywhere he went, he just kept preaching the gospel and preaching the gospel. And did you know that without social revolution, the church changed their society, not through any political means, but through preaching the gospel. Within just a very short period of time, relatively short in the history of the world, just a matter of a few hundred years, the Roman Empire turned around and adopted Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire. That's the same empire that at one time threw all of the Christians to the line and persecuted them and killed them and was antagonistic towards Christianity. How did that happen? Through social reform, through political process, no, it happened through the power of the gospel changing people's lives one at a time. When Jesus came on the earth, he didn't speak against all of the corrupt things that were going on in his day. Now, he would mention it. He would mention it just to say that this is right and this is wrong. But his emphasis wasn't to come change the government system. He told Pilate that. He says, my kingdom isn't of this world or my people would fight If God was into a physical kingdom, well, then maybe he would tell us that, man, we've got to take this kingdom over. Be violent. Let's have a revolt or whatever. But that's not the way that the Lord did it. He didn't preach against all of the corrupt taxation things. Now, he could have, but you know what he did? He just led some of the tax collectors to the Lord. Matthew and Zacchaeus were both tax collectors. When he was asked to even comment on should we pay tribute unto Caesar or not, He had him bring a coin. He says, whose image is it? They said Caesar's. And he says, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. In other words, he says, look, that's not my business. He says, I'm not here to preach on how much tax you should pay. He was there to convert the hearts of people. And because of what he did, I guarantee you that system that was so corrupt failed. And it failed because of Christianity. It failed because of the inroads that Christianity made upon the world. The only attacks that the Lord really made against any group of individuals was against religious people. And it was because they had perverted what God intended. He didn't come out against the secular people. Now, there's certainly things that he said and he didn't compromise with anybody. But I mean, that wasn't the thrust of his attacks. The only stinging attack really that's in the Bible is against the scribes and the Pharisees. The biggest ones in Matthew chapter 23, where a whole chapter there is spent denouncing the scribes and Pharisees, saying, woe unto you, you hypocrites. Praise God. And so here's a statement that Jesus said in John chapter 19 and verse 11. He was standing before Pilate, and Pilate says, don't you recognize that I have power to either kill you or to set you free? And Jesus said, you could have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me to thee hath the greater sin. Now, the Lord was speaking to someone who was in control of government, and they were trying to throw around their political might, and Jesus just, in a sense, said, Man, it's no problem. Political power, you don't have any power except what was given to you. So, in a sense, he was just, you know, discrediting everything that Pilate was saying. He says the person that has the real sin is the population, the scribes and the Pharisees, the crowd that delivered me to you. That's where the problem is. And brothers and sisters, that's the problem in our society today. It's not government that's failed. Government hasn't really failed. And I know that some people may just gasp at that, saying, are you in favor of what the government's doing? No, I'm not in favor of it. I believe that there's a lot of corruption in government. 
I believe that there are things that are just as wrong as they could be. I've suffered. I guarantee you, I've had things happen in my own family with my own kids that the morals of this nation, the public schools, I guarantee you it's affected me. I am not for it. Things need to change. So I agree with the conclusion that people make, and that is that, man, America needs to come back to God, that the laws need to change. We need to quit murdering babies. We need to quit advocating homosexuality, and I mean, or we'll be like Sodom and Gomorrah. I agree with those things, but I'm saying how do we get there? Is it by signing more petitions? Is it by getting more Christians into the political process and doing things like this? Well, that may be a part of it, and again, take advantage of every opportunity you get, but the focus ought to be on preaching the gospel and praying and letting God use you to be a channel of revival. And again, I just go back. If every Christian would affect one other person in the next four years, I guarantee you we would put some godly people into office. And if that continued again, then we would have nearly the entire population of the U.S. born again and serving God. You talk about some changes in the nation. That would change the nation more than any government regulations I tell you, it would transform this nation. That's where our power lies. That's what we've got to put our efforts into. Yes, there's some place for for informing people about social issues and doing things like that. But look at the examples of Paul, of Peter, and of Jesus. That wasn't the thrust of their ministry. And I believe that they impacted their world more than we have. And they didn't have a favorable government system that gave them the freedom to do all of these things. And yet in the midst of hostility, there was tremendous revival. If you go back through church history, you'll actually find that in the midst of oppression, when things were their bleakest, when government systems were their worst, or when some of the greatest revivals happened, and every time it happened, government systems followed. It influenced the world that they live in. The Bible says that we are the light of the world. We're a city set on a hill, and we can't be hid. We're the salt of the earth. And if we aren't salt in the earth, then what's what's it going to be salted with? We are the salt of the earth. The gospel is not just our physical, our political clout, not our votes, but rather it's our gospel. It's Christ in us, and that's what we need to be promoting. That's our powerhouse. And I tell you, if you really understand what we're talking about, there's no reason for despair. There's no reason for discouragement because I believe that what's actually happening is a lot of Christians whose attention was diverted into wrong things and they were spending all of their effort into uh, others' processes which in themselves aren't bad, but they were hinging all of their hopes on it. They put all of their effort into it at the expense of the gospel. You know what's happening? That's going to change. They're going to recognize it. Hey, this isn't the way we're going to win this war. It's not by might nor by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. That's what he said in Zechariah. You know, a lot of people talk about, well, man, what about prayer in schools and and about morality in our public schools and all of this? You know, the question really shouldn't be whether or not God is allowed in public schools. The question is, should there have ever been public schools? Now, that may come as a shock to somebody. They're saying, what are you saying? Did you know that the school system in the United States was started by the church? I don't know enough about this to tell you exactly where and all of these details, but I have read about it, and it was the churches of America that started little schools in their churches, in their local communities, and they did it for the purpose of educating people so that they could read the Bible. That's the reason that people started school. And then it began to expand, and as the government got involved pretty soon, the government started channeling money into it. And because there was morality in government, because the church didn't see a threat, they allowed the government 
to start taking over the job that the church at one time felt a responsibility from God to help people learn how to read the Bible. It was to all instruct them and how to come to know God. And the church actually advocated that responsibility to the government. And maybe for one generation or two, you know, I'm not familiar enough with it to give you the complete scenario, but after a few generations then the government began to change because the morality in the nation began to change because the church no longer was the influence. It wasn't having the power. And so the government began to start putting in humanistic type of things into the school system. And today we have a school system that I believe is just corrupt, I mean, from nearly the top to the bottom. It, and some people are trying to reform it and overhaul it and save the public school system. I'm not sure that we should have ever had a public school system in the first place. That's something that the church started. The church should have kept it. And I know that some people argue with that, but uh, and my children both went through some public school. We had them in Christian school, but it was a poorly run Christian school, and it did them more damage than the public school did. I technically agree with Christian school. I believe that that is a godly way to go, but it has to be a good Christian school. Just because it's got the name Christian on it, and just because the people are Christians, if they aren't doing a good job and if they're preaching legalism, that's not any better than the other. So anyway, my children have gone through the public school system. I'm not saying that it's of the devil, that you're of the devil if your kids go there, but I'm saying it caused us a tremendous amount of damage, and uh, I'm not, just not in favor of it. Now, there are some individual teachers. that I, Everybody in my family, my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my brother-in-law, my sister-in-law, everybody in my family's teachers. I am not against individual people, but I'm just saying that the system as a whole is corrupt, and I think that a lot of it came because I don't think that government was ever intended to do all of those kind of things. Let me take another example that I can even verify from the Scripture, that the Bible tells us that we are supposed to relieve the fatherless and the widows, that we are supposed to have pity and compassion upon the poor. And if we had time, you could take literally hundreds of Scriptures where those are commands to the church. In other words, welfare is what it's talking about. That's the word that we would use today, a welfare system. God gave that responsibility to the church. But the church, at one time or another, began to advocate that to the government because the government at that time was a godly government. It had proper morals in it. And so they just relinquished control. They couldn't see any damage. And they may have never seen any damage in their lifetime because the government at that time was operating under godly constraints. But the moment you get out of doing things the way the Word of God says, it's ultimately going to cause problems. And after generations of letting the government take care of the poor and the elderly and things like this, then the government began to decline, and now we see a government that has so much waste that it's causing terrible problems. And I believe that one of the biggest reasons is because they aren't administering welfare the way that the Bible would do it. Paul said in, in uh, Thessalonians that if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. In other words, you'll help a person, but only if they're going to help themselves, only if they're going to take this and do something with it. You aren't just going to help people vegetate. And see, the government doesn't have that approach at all towards welfare. And as a result, we've got so much abuse in the welfare system, it's actually mortgaging the entire nation, putting us in economic problems, and on and on and on it goes. Some people want to get in and reform the social welfare system. Well, you see, you're trying to reform something that actually belongs in the church. Man, if the church would get out and start doing its job, and there are some organizations that are doing it, uh, it would change things. In Colorado Springs, 
I helped start a pregnancy center, a crisis pregnancy center. It was already going, but it had just, I mean, I think in 10 months, it had only had 10 clients. And the Lord spoke to me and told me that instead of just cursing the darkness, I needed to turn on a light. Instead of criticizing and being against abortion, I needed to do something positively to help the girls that find themselves in that situation. And I found out about these pregnancy centers through a friend of mine in Phoenix. He told me about the response that they were having there, how many people were being born again. And I said, praise God, we can do that. So I came back to Colorado Springs. I threw in with this group. We rented a mall in Colorado Springs, printed up thousands and thousands of cards, bought these uh, projectors and slideshows that would show what a real abortion is and tell the truth about it and about when a child is actually a child, when they become a human being and all of these things. And we put it right in the center of the mall, right out in the middle, not in a store somewhere, but out in the middle where people had to walk by. And did you know that that thing just began to explode? I got pastors and individuals together. I got on my local radio station and I began to announce that we needed volunteers and that we were going to do something about this. And anyway, now that pregnancy center, I forgot exactly how many years ago this is, but it's maybe 10, probably less than that, 8 to 10 years. We now are seeing over 300 new clients each month. I think that that's 300 new ones. But anyway, around 300-and-something clients per month, we're seeing a lot of girls born again. We're seeing babies saved. Matter of fact, we had a front-page article in the Gazette-Telegraph, the local Colorado Springs paper, and it said that the abortion rate in El Paso County, where Colorado Springs is, was cut in half. And in the entire state of Colorado, the abortion rate went down by one-third, and they credited the pregnancy center with the major influence for seeing that come to pass. Now, what I'm saying through this is, that instead of getting in and trying to legislate things or going through legal action, which again, I'm not saying that we should quit those things, but we, in just a matter of a few years, made a greater impact on the abortion problem in Colorado than all of the legislative initiatives and all of the politicians have been able to do in the last 20-something years since Roe versus Wade was legalized and put into effect. And I believe that that could happen over and over again. It could happen as people like uh, the 700 Club has Operation Blessing that's helping poor and, and kids that don't have things to go to school and clothes and fans and air conditioners and things like this. They've got these programs going. If Christians were to do that, you know what, man, government could change in a hurry. Now, again, that's getting pretty close into social action, and I'm saying that that's not the total answer. But if we were preaching the gospel seeing men's hearts converted, and if the church was willing to start doing the things that God commanded us to do, and if we worked all of these things together, boy, we could see the welfare system in the United States. We wouldn't need it if the church was doing its job. And if they were preaching to the people that are just trying to vegetate, and if they didn't work, they didn't eat, things would change. You'd see the economics change. You'd see the politics change. You'd see everything change if the church would just begin to start being the salt of the earth that it needs to be. Praise God. Boy, we could just go on and on and on about this. But I believe that I've already made my case. I've tried to say that, yes, Christians should be involved in politics, but not really as a Christian duty. It's as a duty as a citizen of that country. You have certain physical rights. As a Christian, our duty is to really preach the gospel. We need to put the emphasis on that. That's, that needs to be where it is. We're going to change societies one heart at a time exactly the way Jesus did, the same way that Peter did, the same way that Paul did. They didn't even make an issue out of something as bad as slavery. Instead, they just preached, changed the hearts of men, and as men's hearts changed, 
then those social conditions changed. So praise God. Hopefully, I believe that this will help you define some things. I hope that nobody misunderstands what I'm saying. I vote every time there is anything to come around on. I vote. I've actually been to caucuses. I've been involved in the political process in a limited way because I'm so busy traveling, doing things, it's hard for me to do it. But if if I had a different lifestyle where I just stayed at home and had a regular job, I'd be more involved than what I am. I don't think it would be wrong or sin for me to run for a public office. So I'm not against any of those things. But I'm saying that I would do that as a citizen. It would be an extra thing, the real thrust, the thing that would excite me, the thing that I would put the majority of my effort and my prayer into would be into preaching the gospel and changing man's hearts through the preaching of the gospel. And so I believe that that is the correct attitude for a Christian. And I've cited Jesus' own example, his own words, Paul and Peter, the leaders of the New Testament church that lived under a system that was worse than ours. And I tell you, that is, that's the way that they approached it, and they had a powerful, powerful impact on their world. I believe that we'd do well to emulate it. You know, some people say, but brother, the, the very things that you're talking about, the United States fought a war. I mean, we had the Civil War over the issue of slavery. Are you saying that that was wrong? Well, in the first place, you know, as I've studied this, I don't think that the Civil War was totally over the issue of slavery, and that's, I guess, debatable. But it was one of the issues, and I I read something. I saw this on this public broadcasting thing, and it read letters and excerpts from Lincoln's diary back during that time. And Lincoln, uh, he said that the issue was the preservation preservation of the union he didn't want the southern states to succeed he wanted to keep the united states as a unit and that's what drove him into the war and eventually the war didn't go very good at first and he capitalized on this issue of slavery and made it a major issue and he said that if he could win the war without freeing the slaves he would do it he said that is not the major issue to him the major issue was preserving the nation now, that didn't mean that he liked slavery. He personally was opposed to it, but it just wasn't that primary of an issue to him. But later on, towards the end of the war, he brought that in. He galvanized support by doing it, and it became one of the battle cries of the war. And so I'm not saying that that wasn't an issue, but I'm saying that that's not all that it was about. And I can say this, that I still don't believe that the Civil War was God's best way of ending the slavery problem. Now, I'm not saying that God didn't use it. I'm not saying that God didn't intervene in certain battles. But if the church would have been preaching the gospel, if the church would have been changing the hearts of men and reaching society, I believe that you could have seen that change come without the bloodshed, without the travail, and without all of the things that came to pass. I believe that that would have been God's best. Now, if the church isn't doing his job, well, certainly God has done things other ways. I mean, God... Uh, has a myriad way of doing things. He's not limited, but I believe that God's best, and that's what I'm advocating through the scriptures, is for the church to be the salt of the earth, to preach the gospel, to reach people. And if we would do that, we'd see governments change as the people change. Praise God. Well, I hope that's been a help to you, and I pray that uh, if you disagree with this or something, that you'll still love me. Amen because I'm going to still participate in my government. I'm still going to be an American citizen and pray for them and, and believe for these changes to come. But I'm going to put the majority of the effort into changing people's hearts. And I believe that once God gets on the inside of them, they'll begin to vote better. Praise God.